gender, body acceptance, abortion, sex, racial justice, feminism, birth, parenthood, stigma, bodily autonomy, and more. This is Reproductive Left by Mabel Watson Center, an independent feminist nonprofit comprehensive healthcare provider in Bangor, Maine. Join us as we explore topics that impact our sexual and reproductive health and lives. Here's your host, Aspen Rulin. Aspen uses they, them pronouns and is our client and community advocate. Welcome back to Reproductive Left. I'm your host, Aspen. My pronouns are they, them. And today I'll be interviewing my dear friend and executive director of Maine Transnet and president-elect of the Mabel Wadsworth Center Board, Quinn Gormley. Quinn, I know I just said a bunch of stuff on your titles right out of the gate, but please introduce yourself. Hey, Aspen, nice to be here with you today. Uh, yeah, Quinn Gormley, I use she or they pronouns. Uh, and yeah, I do I do have a number of titles in my life, uh, in my professional life. I, I serve as the executive director of Maine Transnet, which I think we're gonna talk about in a couple minutes here, uh, but we're a, a transgender community organization here in Maine. Uh, and then I've been thrilled to join uh, the Mabel's board uh, for a little over a year now, and I've just recently been elected president-elect. I think my term starts this fall. Um, Exciting. Glad to be here. I am very glad to have you here with me. Uh, so. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, anyone who knows me will not find this surprising, but a lot of our conversation today will be focused on the intersections of trans health and trans rights and abortion access. Um, so first off, I know you said a little bit, but can you tell our listeners some more about Maine Transnet and what Maine Transnet does? I also want to put out here that I am actually on a committee uh, the change team, and I'm on the steering committee at Maine Transnet. Yeah, we have a lot of overlap, don't we? Uh, well, so Maine Transnet uh, is Maine's uh, sole transgender community organization, and we're dedicated to supporting transgender people, those who love us and those who care for us to create a world where transgender people can thrive. Uh, and we do that mostly through a network of peer-based support programs. Uh, so before the pandemic, we had support groups all over the state of Maine from uh, catering on up to Presque Isle and Farmington over to Machias. We're now online uh, and so we're, we're starting to reopen a little bit in person. Uh, we have uh, two large Discord servers, a bunch of online programs, uh, to say nothing of a substantial number of resources that we provide through our website. Uh, we also do a, a fair bit of uh, anti-violence work, specifically with supporting survivors of sexual and domestic violence. Uh, a whole lot of educational work with uh, primarily medical, mental health, and social service providers, a little bit with schools, uh, and we participate in policy advocacy uh, in Augusta. Very cool. Yeah, there has been some good, uh, really great policy advocacy work that I know Maine Transnet has been involved in this session. Um, I'm really excited about the hopeful change to um, name change laws in Maine. That Fingers crossed on that one. Uh, as someone who has gone through a legal name change, I would really like for that process to be better. Um, 
you mentioned, of course, you know, doing education work with health providers. And I think that is a good segue into the next question I had for you, which what are some pieces of trans health that you feel get ignored? Uh, obviously, we have some very limited media representation of trans folks and medical care for our community, but it's not always very accurate. So even for what gets represented, what do you think is misrepresented or really just, again, what do you feel gets ignored? Yeah. So, you know, when I'm thinking about trans health care, I kind of think about three different sort of buckets of trans healthcare. So I think there, there's uh, a question of access. Uh, can trans people actually get healthcare? And when I say that, I mean uh, gender affirming care, like hormones and surgeries. Um, but I also just mean like, can they find a PCP? Can they see a dentist? Um, so that's the access question. Uh, there's a question of quality, which is, is the care that's provided to them appropriate uh, for their needs? Is it uh, gender affirming? Is it uh, knowledgeable of providers who are fluent in their health needs. Uh, and then lastly, do they have choice in where to get their care? Because uh, I think, you know, there's not a lot of good things to be said about the U.S. healthcare system, but the ability for people to choose between providers is one of the things that is good about our system uh, when they can mm -hmm. afford it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I want trans people to, to be able to see a provider that uh, is well suited to their needs and that they're comfortable talking to. Uh, and that means there needs to be more than one option in any given area. And I, I think in terms of what often feels ignored is I think sort of depending on which one of those threads we're pulling, access, choice, or quality, uh, it seems like the, 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 the networks of providers and the health systems that, that we advocate with are usually only ever thinking about one of those, uh, one of those threads. Uh, and so, uh, you know, if we're working with one large system, they might just be thinking about very basic level quality questions, because all they have to think about is what's inside their healthcare system. Uh, whereas uh, a lot of our work is more focused on access. Can people get gender affirming care in all 16 counties in Maine? Um, the answer to that is yes, but only in the last couple of years has that become the case. Um, and then sort of do people have choice, which is I think probably one of the, the next uh, big questions of, of trans healthcare liberation is making sure that there are multiple providers offering multiple types of care available. And for the most part, we don't have a lot of choice in care in Maine. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, I think sort of in any of those categories, things get ignored, um, sort of depending on, on what particular lens a provider takes. Um, I think, and I'm sure that you know this, so a lot of the training that you do with healthcare around trans health advocacy is people uh, you know, we sort of have that, that trans broken arm syndrome issue mm -hmm. where, where people, uh, you know, people only see gender affirming care when they see a trans patient. That's all they can think about. Uh, and don't get me wrong, gender affirming care is, is necessary and evidence-based and life-saving. We need more of it and it needs to be easier to access. Uh, but it's just one small part of the healthcare needs that trans people have. Uh, you know, some data that we have from our survey shows that that trans manners are less likely than the general population to have access to oral health care, for example. Mm -hmm. um, that they're less likely to see a primary care provider, that they are um, less likely to have access to specialists like uh, cancer screenings. Uh, and so there are uh, health care needs that our community has, and some of them, uh, some of our needs are, are more particular to our community because of health disparities and because of some unique aspects, some unique health risks related to our bodies. Uh, and some of the behaviors that we participate in. 
that need to be served too that aren't necessarily, you know, transition related gender affirming care. Uh, and I think that gets overlooked a lot. Yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like that really shows how oversimplified things are because, you know, when cis people who want to be supportive, like when they come to me and are asking things about, you know, like what are pieces of trans help that they, you know, that get ignored, that don't get enough attention, they immediately assume that I'm going to be talking about gender-affirming surgeries and gender-affirming hormone therapy. And again, those things are so important, but there's also so much more to us and our lives than just that. Um, and I also want to give folks an explanation of trans broken arm syndrome for people who haven't heard of it. I feel like it pretty much speaks for itself. Um, basically, it's, you know, let's say you're trans and you break your arm and you go to the emergency room and everything, nothing is about your broken arm and dealing with it. And the provider you're seeing, everything is just about you being trans. Um, do you have other thoughts on trans broken arm syndrome that can help our listeners understand what we mean with that? Yeah, you know, I, I think we, we call it that because it's, it's easy to remember, but I, I think um, trans broken arm syndrome, it, it's a thing particularly in um, sexual health and mm. mental health and in, in cancer treatments uh, is, you know, providers will explain any problem you have because of a hormone prescription. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like the, oh, you, you know, you have colon cancer. It must be the estrogen. Uh, no further testing required to stop taking the estrogen. Um, you know, uh, your mood is changing. You have some anger issues. It must be because you're on testosterone. Uh, we don't need therapy. You need to reduce your hormone levels. Um, so, uh, or it's it's therapists who, who, you know, they just, they want to talk about coming out when maybe you want to talk about grief because you've been out for a decade already. Um, and just the, the fact that, that trans people are whole people gets forgotten a lot by healthcare providers. Uh, and that's a, a continued source of frustration and it's often the source of, of healthcare discrimination for our community. Yeah, it is, as someone who works with patients, it is something that I've heard people express a lot and it's just very frustrating that people don't seem to understand that we are whole people um, and a bit mind boggling, but you know, um, one thing that is sticking out to me, cause you had mentioned access, uh, and that is something that comes up a lot when talking about abortion care for very good reasons. Uh, you know, Mabel Wadsworth center is the northernmost clinic in the state where you can have the in-clinic procedure, Maine family planning, love them. They have clinics further north that have the medication abortion. Uh, and I'm really glad they have that for folks who are further north of us. But, you know, if, if someone needs an in-clinic procedure, they're having to, to travel to us. And that is, you know, a huge issue around access and is a huge issue around the country. Um, and that's just, you know, one of the ways that abortion care and trans health are connected to each other. Uh, there are so many ways. And I have really found that some people are surprised to find that health centers like Mabel Wadsworth Center that provide abortion care also very often provide gender-affirming hormone therapy. Why do you feel it makes perfect sense? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I'll say, I think the fact that, so means abortion care providers 
provide about 40% of the gender affirming hormone therapy available. Mm -hmm. They are the collectively the largest provider of gender affirming care. Uh, and notably also provided all using the informed consent model of care, which is what the trans community and what, what trans advocacy organizations have been advocating for for, for decades uh, at this point. And I think it's really easy when I'm talking to a community member and I say, where can I get gender-affirming care? It's real convenient to be able to say, well, anywhere that you could get an abortion, you can get gender-affirming care. And that makes that makes it really easy for people to hold on to uh, uh, for where to, where to look for that care. Uh, you know, I think gender-affirming care and abortion raise a lot of the same questions. Uh, they're both fundamentally about bodily autonomy. Um, they're mm. both deeply entwined with sexism. Uh, and so uh, providers who are already comfortable with the ethics of that, who are already fluent uh, in questions of autonomy and how uh, you know structural sexism might influence people's lives, uh, and who are already used to working with people of marginalized genders uh, are going to be well-suited and likely already engaged uh, and interested in supporting the healthcare needs of transgender people. Uh, and so it really is just a, it's a clean fit uh, in my experience. And I, I think um, in particular, a lot of the, you know, around like clinic safety and confidentiality and, and patient comfort that I think is well prioritized within abortion clinics really helps a lot of trans patients. Um, and so it just makes sense um, to have the care be in the same place. Exactly. And and I think the other thing that connects them, which is so obvious that sometimes we forget to say it, is that trans people have abortions. Like that's, that's one of the things that comes up. You know, I've noticed that people who are really involved like very active in the abortion access movement, like they know that, they've known that for a very long time. It's you know, very much been a thing. And people who maybe support abortion access that haven't been as involved are kind of like surprised at the idea of like, oh, trans people have abortions. And like, yeah, of course we do. Trans people do, like you said, we're whole people. We do all kinds of things. We have abortions. We give birth, we choose to be parents, we choose to be child free. Like there is just you know, get laid. A lot of nuance. <laughs> yeah, a lot of nuance to our lives yeah. as whole people, which always makes me think of the definition of reproductive justice from um, Sister Song. So Sister Song is a um, group of um, indigenous women, women of color, black women, and trans folks, um, also an organization that I just adore. Uh, and so their definition of reproductive justice in that framework is the human right to maintain personal bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. And I feel like, you know, that that framework of reproductive justice, I mean, first off, I know for a fact, they're very clear about it, that they're very deliberate about including trans people but I feel like when we look at reproductive health through that framework, it is so clear how trans people are a part of it. And again, that focus on bodily autonomy, I think is really important for talking about trans health, both where it overlaps with abortion care and where it doesn't. You know, these are just issues of like, are we respecting 
people's like inherent human rights to have control over their bodies. Absolutely. That's a great definition. Uh, I particularly like the, the last section about the right to, to raise children within sustainable communities. Um, yeah, it's a very like big picture approach yeah. that I really like it. Um, they, well, it also answers the, the, so many of our, our cultural discussions around abortion, uh, don't think past birth. Right. Right. Uh, they don't think that, you know, if, if the choice is, is to have a child, that child is a person <laughs> who will continue to be alive, who needs things and that's a right. factor. <laughs> right. Exactly. So. It's, and both, you know, when we're looking at people who are anti-abortion and people who are in, um, you know, support of abortion access, there is often, again, that sort of like pretending that once birth is like everything's done with, there's nothing else after that. Um, but also this idea of approaching abortion only on an individual choice level and how that doesn't acknowledge access barriers, how that doesn't acknowledge, does someone want to continue a pregnancy, but they do not have the resources that they need. They don't have the community support and how, you know, if like in fighting to create this future of like actually realizing reproductive justice, like, yes, abortion will exist. Of course it will exist. And there will be people who will actually have the opportunities to parent in safe and sustainable communities, which is, you know, a thing we deserve to have. Absolutely. Um, this has been so lovely chatting about the, you know, the intersections of abortion care and trans health. Um, I want to check, are there other thoughts that you have, whether about those topics more generally or just um, about main transnet, anything exciting happening there? Well, you know, actually thinking more with my Mabel's hat on, I, you know, I think Mabel's has been going through this interesting transition, all puns intended, um, <laughs> as, as gender affirming care has become a not just a, a, a component of the care that Maples offers, but really a central part of Maples' mission uh, over the last, what is it, four or five years that, that we've been doing this. And, you know, I, I, I think Maples is this great example of something that I see a lot in my work, which is that when people start talking about trans inclusion, um, it messes everything up for the better, uh, in my experience. And it, it it just, we, we pull on so many assumptions, we pull on so many different threads, uh, and it makes us ask all these questions about why is the work we do the way we do it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think Mabel's choice to expand to offering mental health services, to expand to offering primary care services, is coming from this recognition that the, the patients and clients that we see for abortion care, for gender affirming care, for reproductive and sexual health, our whole people who have whole healthcare needs. Mm -hmm. And that if we're going to achieve sort of a, a health just world for them, you know, they have trouble accessing those other healthcare needs, not just these, these ones. And they need safe and supportive clinics to get those care needs met. And when those other care needs are met, their reproductive and sexual health is better. They're gonna be more consistent with their gender affirming care. And when they need abortions, they'll know where to get it. Uh, and so I, I really do see 
sort of our, our expansion into gender affirming care as being a huge part of why we're looking at this whole health and whole people approach to healthcare now across the clinic, because mm. the needs of our patients are bigger than just these narrow parts of our lives. Um, and that that's honestly why, why I'm here. Um, you know, I'm passionate about reproductive justice, of course I am, but that wasn't the spark that got me introduced to Naples. Um, it was kind of the, this broader question of access and providing whole health care. Um, and through embracing that, I've learned to embrace reproductive justice as a central tenet of that. Um, and I think it's just, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to grow and to do more for the, the communities that we serve uh, and to continue to be uh, a leading clinic on, on issues of equity and justice in the state of Maine and in my opinion, just be the coolest clinic in the state. Um, so I, I'm thrilled to be part of that work and I'm, I'm thrilled that I get to work with you uh, in the many ways that we cross paths. It's very exciting that I get to work with you, whether it's like, you know, doing things like this, uh, you know, having a conversation with like a cancer equity group or, um, you know, really across the board, which I also feel like shows again, this is everything is so interconnected. Um, I want to thank you again for joining us today. Uh, and also thank you to our listeners for uh, listening along with us. Um, and we will see you on the next episode of Reproductive Left.